This is Craig Williams, founder of Journey 12 and the publisher of Moments School's quarterly magazine, The One, which I hope, by the way, you and yours are truly enjoying. Listen, school is out, baseball and grilling is in full swing, and our summertime rituals have us about as far away from the day-to-day kids-to-school rituals as they could possibly have us. And yet, speaking with educators, the lives they lead, and the impact they have is still my favorite thing to pack into a podcast. So today we have the privilege of chatting with 19-year teaching veteran Christy Porter, who joined us here in Moments about nine years ago and has some very powerful observations to share about why early childhood education is so important and how we can build better outcomes by investing just a little bit of time each day into really listening to children and hearing what is important important to them. She's making a real impact on the future of our community through her work with the youngest among us. Let's jump in and meet Christy Porter. And tell me again, is it your pre-K specialist, but you do some interesting things in that realm. Can you tell me about that? Yes. So I've kind of had a dual position in the last few years. I have one class that's pre-K and it's a blended classroom. So it's our regular preschool program that integrates some of our IEP special education students in it. And then I've also had the self-contained special education classroom, which is just our kids with IEPs. Gotcha. So you're really uh, a person of, of several talents and applying yourself to that foundational piece of the of the school experience, right, which is so yeah. important. Mm-hmm. How long have you been in the role, Christy? Um, so I think I am finishing year 19 total in, as a teacher and my year nine here in Moments. Oh, that's fantastic. So at some point you made a decision, I suppose, in your career that, you know, this is what I really want to do. It was that a two-stage decision as in, well, I think I want to go into teaching, but then, oh, by the way, I really want to be this kind of specialist. Or talk to me about what did it look like for you? So for me, I knew I always wanted to do the younger kids. So that's what geared me towards that early childhood certificate to do the birth to third grade. Um, It actually wasn't until my junior year of college within that that I realized my program actually gave you the dual endorsement for the special education um, within it. And then those summers, my mom worked in a school district as a para, so she kind of got me in doing some paraprofessional work during summer school in the district that she worked in, um, which really kind of opened up that special education world for me, and I really enjoyed it. And then that's how I ended up pursuing it as the full-time teaching job. So the work that you did that was uh, assisted by your mother and the opportunities Mm -hmm. that she presented, was that in your college years? Was that as part of your student teaching or? Um, Yeah, in my college years, I think it was my sophomore summer, junior summer, somewhere in there um, where I got more involved within that. And then I had some of my placements um, had to have some of those special education minutes as well. Well, you know, you talked about... um, kind of knowing that you wanted to work with the younger kids and that that was sort of the direction you felt that you were headed. Um, Was that inspired by something? I mean, was there a particular experience or a a certain teacher that inspired you when you were younger, younger siblings? I mean, how did you land on that? Yes. Um, Well, my mom was the librarian um, paraprofessional. She assisted in the library probably from when I was in third grade on. So I always went to school with her and I was in the schools, you know, before and after. 
Um, and I also had some pretty awesome teachers. My first grade teacher was amazing, and then I got to have her again in fourth grade. Um, so just, I think, being around all of the teachers all day kind of brought me here. They sort of acclimatized you and said, you know what, mm-hmm. this is, this is, we normalize the world for, for Christy. It's, she's yes. going to be a teacher. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you say you've been in Moments for nine years and that your mom was a librarian in a, as of yet, unnamed place. Where did you make these wonderful visits to your mom's library and, and where was that? Um, so she worked in the district I went to elementary school in, which was up in Barrington. It was okay. Grove Avenue School. Um, and that's where she was. And that's where I went through fifth grade. Um, And then I went through the schools there up through high school. Yeah. So then off to college, where'd you go to school, Christy? I went to Bradley University in Peoria for my undergrad. And then I did do um, my master's in curriculum and instruction at Olivet here in town. Yeah. Um, And my ELL endorsement, which is part of pre-K too, was done there. Okay. You know, I think on my several visits to Moments, I've sort of picked up on a, a sense of community that really feels pronounced in this mm-hmm. in this place. Um, can you share with me a little bit about, you know, how, again, you've been there for a long enough time, I suppose, now to be yeah. sort of assimilated as part of the family. But at the same time, you know, you did come from another place. Um to, to what is really kind of a hybrid community, wouldn't you agree? It's got cornfields, but it's also not very far from Kankakee. And yes. if you want to go to Chicago, it's not too far from Chicago. Uh, what makes moments moments in your mind? Um, I definitely think it's that small town feel. For me in pre-K, we've had the same staff pretty much within pre-K since I've come here. Um, which is amazing because you're able to build those relationships with families and you know, I've had three or four kids from each family as we've gone. So you really get to grow with the community and the family. And I really enjoy that here. Yeah. And that, that's so important too. that continuity of of, uh, of faculty and, and of, of staff. And and these days that seems to be in short supply. I, I see a bit more turnover maybe than we had seen a decade or so ago. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I would say you definitely see turnover here and there, but it's been great that our core people here in pre-K have remained and stayed and have helped really build a great program. Yeah. You know, I know we're a public district and we work exclusively with public schools um, and mostly rural public schools, if I'm being completely honest. One of the things that I really love about pre-K and I want to make a, a little comparison here and just get your thoughts on it. I live in St. Louis, and I know many of the friends that we have um, invest big dollars to send their kids to private education for high school or even starting in seventh grade. A lot of them will poo-poo the notion of spending those same kinds of dollars with their younger students. And and I think that's backwards. I, I really wonder why that is. And it seems to me that if we're going to look at any of these stages of education that are most important, it seems to me you're working in them right now. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it about our, maybe it's our culture. I don't know what it is that says, well, we'll spend $30,000 on high school tuition at some private school for our son or daughter, but yeah, I don't feel the same way about our kindergartner. Doesn't it seem backwards to you? I think so. Yeah. Sometimes I think, You think of the three and four-year-olds and you think, oh, they're just going to play. They're just going to do this. But there's not that understanding that 
during this play, they're learning X, Y, Z, or they're starting, you know, those pre-skills that you need for when you're expected to go to kindergarten and first grade. Yeah, and it's foundational. And, you know, um, to, to see a child develop a love uh, of learning at that stage is no guarantee that they will remain um, attached to that idea throughout their academic career. But it's sure nice to give them that start, isn't it? It is. It's fun to see their growth. And um, for me, some of my kids I had, you know, for three years based on their birthday. And it's really cool to see how far they've developed since, you know, they were three. And now I see some coming over here for fifth grade. And it's just amazing to see how much they've changed and how much more skills they've developed. I know there's all sorts of data points that probably we could discuss. I'd be interested just in sort of a, I don't know, an ad hoc um, set of insights that you might have as to the difference it can make, you know, to, to give a child a solid pre-K experience and, and to be able to provide that kind of support to them, whether that be learning to socialize, learning to play, um, learning to understand that you're part of something bigger than yourself or whatever it may be. Um, with those children who are not so fortunate to have those opportunities for one reason or another, it could be um, just work situations don't permit it, or, you know, um, maybe there's nothing available in the area. And again, we're not talking about moments because we know that you do have that there, but aren't there some fairly pronounced differences in outcomes between um, students who are able to have a a solid pre-K experience and those who just aren't? Yeah, I think, you know, it gives them that opportunity to experience school and structure and routine and experience some of those expectations. Um, I think the field of early childhood definitely hurts um, with availability and staffing and things like that across, you know, the state. Um, I've kind of gotten involved in some of the birth to five stuff with one of my friends. She's kind of heading that up and I learned like there's 9,000, I think she said, kids under five and just being able to find enough daycares availability or even those um, pre-K classrooms is hard for a lot of parents. 9,000 in what geographic area? Um, within our county, I think it was. Okay. It might, that might be really high. This was a couple months ago we talked about it. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if it that might have even been. I might be. Yeah, I know. Forgive my guessing on back to that. It might have been lower, but um, it might have even been two thousand. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, that, don't <laughs> I'm worry. That's on okay. On a tangent, but in the end, the avail- av- available spaces was way lower than the actual number. Yeah. So what for kids? Yes. Yeah. So you're you're just what you're really describing is a um, a scarcity complex here that yes. we that we that we face because look there just aren't enough seats you know for the numbers of of children that we have which doesn't that seem devastating I mean just imagine if you're a young parent and you know you we all want the best for our kids and we you know we, we go online and we're like okay where are we going to send her how is Annabelle going to get you know on that track and. To be confronted with, well, just a big old void. There's just not there. So how lucky are our families and moments to be able to have this option? And this option, by the way, does this extend, I I suppose, is it just within the district footprint or does it extend beyond the district footprint or how does that work? Um, So we currently have the Preschool for All grant. So that is um, for our district students first, but that grant does open up to other students as well. Okay. Um, Should we have availability and there's an interest level. 
Um, so we have that portion, and then we also have our special education block grant that helps fund for the self-contained. Uh, how many students are we actually serving through this program? Um, this year we had, I think, 82 between oh, wow. all of the classrooms. That's remarkable. Yes. And, 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 and as you said, it's moments first, the way the grant mm-hmm. is structured. Um, are we serving any students who aren't specifically moments district at this point? Nope. But right. we have the capacity if, if that becomes a thing? Uh, yeah, the grant has some stipulations that, you know, it's funded for the whole state. Um, but usually we have enough here that we don't need to open it up to anybody else. Right. Right, right, right. Okay. So, you know, education seems to be going through something transformative. And I don't know if that is impacting the work that you find yourself invested in uh, or not. But I see it in some of the older grades and particularly acute in the high school years. You know, there seems to be um, a lot of, uh, you know, just a lot of, you know, wringing of hands over, well, shall we do this? Shall we do that? You know, a lot of focus in the older grades of focusing on CTE now and, um, you know, getting kids into the trades and these kinds of things. How, how has that sort of transformative moment in American education impacted your work? Have you seen anything significantly different in the 19 years that you've been doing it? Um, I think preschool has kind of changed in the essence that, you know, try to work on more of those rote skills and moving away from some of the play or even at those younger, like kindergarten years, those kids still need some opportunities to learn through play. Um, I think the focus has switched to all of a lot of rote stuff and ignoring how important that play piece is for kids. So I know we do our best at this level to keep that going for them. Yeah, I remember, I don't know when it was, 8, 10, 12, 15 years ago, but there was a lot of discussion about Finland and, you know, the, the sort of Finland approach of, of learning through play. And, you know, of course, Americans being Americans, we do what we do and say, ah, you know, we can do it better you know what's this finland idea <laughs> mm-hmm. but there is a there is something essential isn't there about learning to interact with others through play and at that age especially it's just critical and again as you were saying or i think as you were intimating if a kid doesn't learn to have fun learning then it's tough sledding ahead right yes they have to find enjoyment in it and that's how people learn best with those hands on and you know exploring the world around them yeah, absolutely. You, know, you said something interesting earlier. You said that you know you, you you're seeing some of the students that you first began working with when you came to the district. Now, in some of the um, you know middle school grades or some of the older grades, I think you might have mentioned fifth grade. What is that like for a teacher? I mean, put us in that space. Those of us who aren't teachers, what is it like to know that you had um, you had a place in that child's life in in her world um, mm-hmm. during a moment that. It was, you know, critical to her. So for me, I've really realized that a lot of times the kids don't remember you, you know, because it's so early in their memory that Mm. you're not one that stands out. But in the end, for me, for this particular student, he was one that was nonverbal. And now he's coming over and he has a device and he was just sitting there laying and talking, you know, through his device. And it's just so awesome to see um, that progression. Like you see a little bit in that three to five that you have them and then how those skills continue to build um, to become the awesome kids that they are is really cool. Yeah, that has to be an amazing thing. And, you know, it's easy for us to maybe hear those words and, 
even sort of process them intellectually, but I'm trying to put myself in more of a visceral space. You know, what does it feel like? I, I can feel what it must be like to, you know, to, to see that moment when a child recognizes that, look, you know, part of the reason why they are who they are is because of a role that you played in their, in their world at that moment. That's pretty exciting stuff, I would think. It is. You know, one of the things that you mentioned when we first began chatting that I'd like to just touch on a little bit, maybe get some, some uh, insight from you on. You mentioned that a number of your students have IEPs and that at the same time you're, you're working with students with some, you know, some, some more, um, um, some, some deeper circumstances that, you know, that, that you work with them on. And then also there's a gen ed sort of a population that you work with. I've always believed and I've witnessed it actually, you know, real value between having that whole group sort of interact with one another, you know, mm-hmm. that there's, there's no segregation of, okay, well, you know, these kids are over here and these kids are over here. My son, for example, is a first grader and last year as a kindergartner, he, um, he, he made friends with a, a special needs boy. Um, his name was Adrian and, you know, absolutely loves him. When we see him out somewhere, it's, hey, Adrian, he goes over and talks to him. It gives my son an opportunity to express empathy, kindness, those kinds of things. How do you see that play out socially in your in your student world? Um, it's something I definitely see and really love to see for all of the kids. Um, the team here that I work with is amazing in supporting that. Um, from day one, we were able to, you know, do recess together, go on field trips together. Um, as kids are ready, you know, push them into their classrooms for those social experiences. Um, and you definitely see the comfort level grow with those students, too. I had one um, last week who would always come get me or my staff to push him on the swing. And then we're out with the bigger class and he's going up to kids and other kids and pulling them over to the swing to push him. So you really see that growth in interaction because um, they've got kids like them and yes. they can learn from them. So, Yes. No, that's that's huge. What a wonderful experience. Yeah, I think about, we mentioned community earlier, and I mean, really, if you get right down to it, we're we're all just one big community, but we're also a series of sort of sub-communities, and, and that breaks down even further into families, you know, doesn't it? Um, and I often ask educators when I, when I speak with them, how can these various communities best support these children? Um, we all, I think, know instinctively or as parents through experience that, you know, reading to a child is a huge benefit, but there are other things that we can do as, as a community. What are some of your thoughts about that, uh, that, that we can do to support these young people and even yourself as an educator? I think definitely talking with your kids, um, setting aside, aside time each day, you know, to talk about their day, talk about things that interest them. Um, sit down and play with them. I know your days can be busy as a parent myself. You get home and you've got you know, dinner to get done, homework to get done, and all of that, but trying to make time you know, to have that communication and talk um, and not just you know, put on devices or things like that. Um, really just talk to your kids. Give them an opportunity to share um, what their day is like and maybe their favorite part of their day or what they might have had a hard time with. Um, just talking with them, I think, is important. You know, it's so funny you, you mentioned putting the devices down. Did you happen to see the 
TED talk given by the five-year-old recently? Oh, no, I think I missed that one. Oh, my gosh. I just saw this on LinkedIn. I think it was Mm -hmm. yesterday. This young lady gave a talk about how important the emergent growth of young brains are between the ages of zero and five. And she made such a compelling case, and she was so well put together from the the TED stage. It wasn't TEDx. It was full-on TED. And she made the point. She said, it's so important for you grown-ups to put your devices down and spend real time with us. And I love that. And at the same time, I almost shed a little tear because I know I'm guilty of it too as a, as a dad. You know, I've got two young children and an older son. And there are many times where I try to multitask that. And what an important message that is. Can you speak to that a little bit from the standpoint of I know when you began teaching, you know, the iPhone hadn't quite yet come out. But now we are confronted with devices and we're drawn to them. How in the world? Are there any guidelines or any ideas you have about how we can prioritize and say, no, my child, this child is more important right now? It is. I think, you know, it might just even be looking at yourself and setting limits. I know I struggle with it myself. (laughs) I say it, but, um, you know, it can be an addicting thing and just... Making a point at some point in your day, you know, to put it all down and just to sit and talk. And I know within my house, we do that at dinner. We're fortunate right now to be able to do that. And we have this discussion and the kids know that each one gets to go around the table each night and say what their best part of their day was. Um, And it's really cool. My husband and I, we actually foster kiddos and um, we had a placement two years ago and we started it then with them. And they left us, and then they actually ended up coming back. And the first night at dinner, that's what they said. They go, who gets to go first to talk about their favorite part of their day? So, Wow. That is exciting. I think that's a nice place to start. Yeah. Wow. How gratifying that must have been for you and your husband to hear that young person say that. Because you impacted them in a way that has to be, I think, fairly permanent, right? Yeah. Oh, that's huge. How how long have you and your husband been uh, fostering? Um, it was. I think we were licensed at the end of 2020, so we have had two placements, and then one came back. So there's twins that we have now. Oh my! With our so own son. You, uh, how old is your son? He is nine. Nine years old. That's an exciting age. Boy, lots of things happening there. What a great time. Well, so you became foster parents just um, right around COVID time when it first came mm-hmm. in, didn't you? Yeah, oh my the gosh. tail end of you know the 2020 year, so... Yeah, yeah. Well, it's an important work to do. I, um, we At one point, we explored the idea of becoming licensed and came very close to doing it. And then, boom, we had a child of our own, and you know, we turned our focus that way. So yep. did that instead. And that's wonderful. So I, I really enjoyed sort of getting... Um, you know, sort of a structural sense of what it is that you do, but also more of a um, almost a spiritual sense of what you do, because I can sense in 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 some of your explanations and uh, the way you feel about your work that this is this is probably more than just a job for you, isn't it? I mean, it feels like more than a job. Yeah, yeah it is. It's what when makes th- me me. <laughs> yeah, when you when you think about your greatest hopes for these 
these young people of moments. I know that there are lots of paths that they can and will choose as they move forward. But as they leave your care, as they leave this phase of their education, what what are your best hopes for them, Christy? Oh, just that they continue to, you know, be productive, responsible, and can grow into their best person that they can be. I think that's very well put. Mm-hmm. Well, Christy Porter, pre-K educator extraordinaire, it's been a pleasure chatting with you this morning. Thank you so much for making me this time. Too. Thank you for having me. You know, I've often marveled at the game of golf. Now, I'm no good at it, of course. But even I can sink that final putt at some point after some unknown number of club swings. Because, you know, golf, like so much about life, is really just a series of incremental adjustments made over the course of time, or in golf, over perhaps a few hundred yards. Now think about it, though. Regardless of your skill level, you will eventually find your golf ball at the bottom of a four and a quarter inch cup buried level with the grass far beyond your ability to see it. Now, I think education of a child or of our children is a little like that because I know at times it seems entirely unlikely that this small child in our care will ever be able to do all of the things necessary for adult survival to find their way to, let's call it the cup. It just seems impossibly out of view sometimes. But you know, through the work of people, real education professionals like Christy, they do. But it's not without some adjustment along the way. Or some recognition that we've got to make a course correction, perhaps a significant one. Heck, sometimes we've just got a bad lie. And we've got to find our way out of the rough and back onto the fairway. But you know... Teachers like Christy Porter and her colleagues here at Moments don't panic. They just persevere. And with each incremental step, they move our children closer to the successful finish. As I reflect on this, I see that it really is quite a remarkable thing to behold. Can you imagine a time lapse of that process? Like when we watch a flower bloom or the moon cycling through its phases. I mean, really, just incredible. Look, mad props to our teachers. Mad props to Christy. Well, that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed our discussion today and that you'll subscribe so you won't miss a single episode in the future. Again, I'm Craig Williams with Journey 12 for the Moments One podcast. And as always, I just want to say it is my honor to help share some of the important stories behind your community success. Listen, stay healthy, stay safe, and stay engaged in your own remarkable journey. And if you're able, help someone else along with theirs. 